Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Magic and Medicine, a bonus series of the Three Ravens podcast, all about superstitious spells, crazy charms, and some downright revolting remedies. I'm Eleanor Conlon, and I'm gazing into the dark depths of a polished obsidian stone to spy a shape shimmering into my consciousness. It's my co-host, Martin Vaux. Hello! Eleanor and I were just saying that it's been a bit of a breathless start to 2024. Yes, we <laughs> haven't at all had the kind of January we usually expect, which is normally quite slow, mm. but we're hoping to be able to switch off and enjoy a bit of quiet contemplation over the Imac period, which is, of course, over the next few days. Yes, we talked about it all on our Patreon exclusive Imog special. So if you fancy finding out more and enjoying an exclusive seasonal story, please consider subscribing at patreon.com forward slash three Ravens podcast for three dollars a month or six dollars a month. We have lots of other excellent things too, like our new monthly newsletter, which is out today, complete with folk customs for the month, a magic spell and a tarot spread and some recommendations of things we've been enjoying. Mm -hmm. You'll also have access to episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, where we watch and review a folk horror film each month. So, Eleanor, you were gazing into a crystal. Were you able to see what we're going to be talking about today? I certainly was. Today (laughs) we'll be talking about scrying, also known as seeing, gazing and peeping. Ooh, scry me a river. Now, Eleanor and I actually managed to independently buy each other crystal spheres last Christmas. And a couple of years ago, Eleanor also found me an obsidian scrying glass, just like Dr. D. So we have an embarrassment of scrying equipment. We have, but I wouldn't say I feel particularly confident using scrying as a method of divination yet. So I'm hoping that the research for this episode will empower us and we'll soon be witnessing stories unfurl within the depths of our crystals. Excellent. Okay, so where are we going to start? Well, as you know, I am a big fan of written instructions. Yes. If there's an option to read a list of instructions rather than watch a video, I will take it. So naturally, I found myself in that incredibly instructive corner of the internet, 
wiki how okay i mean i'm struggling to think that a wiki how on crystal gazing is gonna have arcane knowledge locked within well it absolutely <laughs> exists and it's not totally horrible <laughs> numbered instructions brightly colored illustrations uh, uh, it's certainly a start <laughs> but i wanted to use my crystal to gaze back a bit further into the annals of time and find out a little bit more about the history of scrying before we work through wiki house helpfully numbered points <laughs> wiki house helpfully numbered points my goodness so okay Firstly, does scrying always have to involve a crystal sphere or disc? Not at all. Mm. Over time, a number of different methods of scrying have been recorded, including, but not limited to, staring into mirrors, dishes of water, observing clouds, gazing at light reflected off a pool of oil, looking into fire or smoke, interpreting images created by dripping wax into water, or even looking deep within someone else's eyes and observing the reflections. Well, that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, so as far as I know, the earliest references to using mirrors in divination, for example. I posted about this on social media earlier this week. The ancient Greeks we know and also the ancient Egyptians used to half suspend mirrors into water and then in a sort of darkened room using candles they would then stare into that mirror and in the reflections they would hope to see news about love or disease or death. But basically, as far as I understand, scrying does involve looking intensely into some sort of reflective surface and kind of observing and interpreting what you see in there. Exactly. The term scrying, which is still used today, comes from descry, which seems to be Old English in origin. Right. To descry means to make out dimly or to reveal. And it's connected to the idea of second sight. Yes. I mean, we talk about second sight implicitly quite a lot on Three Ravens. But just to clarify, second sight is a form of extrasensory perception, which refers to kind of receiving information with the mind rather than using the physical senses. So that might take the form of a vision of future events or knowledge about something or someone which isn't apparent on a kind of physical level or plane. So many of the things we talk about involve a degree of extrasensory perception. Yeah. For example, seeing or experiencing phenomena associated with ghosts. Mm. Now, we often joke about this because Martin is highly sensitive and perceptive. <laughs> Whereas I'm much more likely to sleep peacefully in a haunted house. Yes, Eleanor would be the only person ever to give the Borley Rectory Airbnb five stars for an excellent night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I'm going to allow the unquiet dead to get in the way of my eight hours. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I find it quite disturbing. You know, I mean, it happens all the time to us. I, I know what you're thinking a lot of the time. That's true. We do communicate subliminally, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we do. I finish your sentences. I use the words you're going to use in a sentence. And you do it to me sometimes as well. But we've got some kind of woo-woo thing going Absolutely. On, okay. So it seems to me that scrying, rather than simply immediately coming to you, does require at least if you're if you're not kind of gifted or, or don't have a second sight, you kind of need to get into a slightly altered state. I mean, certainly I've, I've read about that in, in previous and old texts. Yeah, I think it has a lot in common with modern ideas about meditation and clearing the mind. Yeah. Indeed, the wiki how <laughs> suggests you start your scrying session with a good old meditate. <laughs> See, now I do really struggle, as you well know, with meditation. My mind never wants to clear. It's loud and noisy and very, very busy in there. And the same. Over the years, I've settled for sitting under a tree instead of <laughs> attempting structured meditation sessions. Yeah. But 
Perhaps that's where scrying might come in useful to us because the reflective surface, whatever that may be, acts as a kind of focus to train the mind away from all those trivialities which occupy us all and gets us into a space where we can be more receptive to that second sight rather than worrying if we've left the iron plugged in. <laughs> that's very true. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the longer you look into a mirror, the stranger your face seems to become. Oh, absolutely. The stranger the world seems to become. If you ever go to a hairdresser's yeah. and you just stay stare and stare at your own reflection for ages don't you think you look strange after a while it always happens and so if you do that in a half-light state and spend time looking at yourself and at the room around you you do start to notice things hear things smell things that may be there may not be there i mean it's a pretty freaky experience I mean, the idea for this whole episode came to us after we went to the British Museum. And there we saw Dr. John Dee's obsidian scrying mirror, which is such an inspiring object. Yes, it was thrilling to see it. And I will talk more about John Dee today as he's a personal favourite historic figure and very connected to the idea of scrying. So the sphere you got me is obsidian too. Now, is that stone particularly connected to a particular kind of divination. So obsidian is actually a type of volcanic glass, which is formed when lava rapidly cools. Interesting. It doesn't form crystals due to the viscosity of lava, so it appears very shiny naturally. But when it's polished, it takes on this highly reflective appearance. Oh, yes. I like to polish my obsidian and get it really (laughs) glinty. And in modern crystal work, of course, it's regarded as a stone of cleansing and protection. It's said to be able to block and absorb negative energies. Which is probably ideal if you're focusing all of your attention onto it. Indeed. (laughs) So what do we know about the history of scrying? I've mentioned some examples, but when and where do we think it originates? It's actually pretty difficult to say. Scrying in some form has been used for thousands of years, but it's not a formal discipline. And as such, it's difficult to clearly define. Yeah, that's the thing I've always been most suspicious about, Mm. personally. When the idea that you would go to someone and they would like look into their crystal ball and interpret reality for you and tell you the nature of your reality. I mean, that's a very subjective thing that puts a lot of power onto that scryer. Absolutely. And of course, it may not involve gazing into a reflective surface. It yeah. might also mean interpreting observable natural phenomena like the flight of birds or the movement of clouds. Well, in terms of divination more generally. Yeah. Yes, uh, but that can also be referred to as a type of scrying. Really? Yeah, so we can say with confidence that it's been practised in many cultures and has been connected to looking back into the past, understanding the present and divining the future. I mean, in terms of the ancientness of this tradition, again, we've spoken about this on the podcast any number of times, but reflect surfaces in prehistory we know were sacred right so there's lots and lots of evidence of ancient peoples breaking items and throwing them into bodies of water Mm -hmm. lakes sacred pools sometimes the ocean as a way of passing between the material world and the spirit world yes and we've we've talked about items being broken to sort of ritually kill them yeah flag fen is a really Mm. good example of that and so you can see how from those reflective surfaces and looking into those reflective surfaces and and seeing what you can see within that 
surface, which is the link to the spirit world, you could start to then develop beliefs about what you can see about the hidden world, what you can see about yourself that other people can't see in that physical world above the water, as it yes. were. Yes, and with the idea of mirrors or reflections, we get the idea of doubles, don't we? Yes. Is the self I see in the reflection mm. a true reflection or does it reflect something that I'm not even conscious of? Yeah. That's very interesting to me. Fascinating. Okay, so we know a little bit about the ancient Greeks. We know a little bit about the ancient Egyptians. I mean, it's all quite vague. But outside of those cultures, when's the first proper reference, if we accept that scrying likely predates any written account? Well, one of the earliest references is in the 10th century Persian text, the Shahnameh, which is a long historical poem regarded as Greater Iran's national epic. Wow, I've never heard of it. The Shahnameh tells us about the cup of Jamshid, a legendary magical item which was used in pre-Islamic Persia. Oh, that sounds a little bit like a kind of Persian holy grail. Well, the cup of Jamshid is a cup of divination, which can supposedly be used for observing all seven layers of the universe. Whoa, seven, like a trifle or a really good lasagna. <laughs> yes, the trifle of the universe, yeah. all in the cup of Jamshid. And Jam al-Shid was a mythic shah or a king who features in tales of the legendary Pishtadian dynasty. Ooh, and is there any basis in historical fact? In terms of this dynasty, like, no. do we think it actually existed? No, no. They're a line of primordial kings in Zoroastrian folklore. Right. But their legends certainly influence Persian and Iranian culture. And the cup of Jamshid in particular has been the subject of many, many creative works. I can't believe I don't know it. Oh, you'll have to look it up. It's very interesting. I will. <laughs> and as well as being used for scrying to see into the, the seven trifly layers of the universe, <laughs> it was also said to be filled with the elixir of immortality Ooh. and had the power to reveal deep truths. Ah, see, I find the idea of immortality and things linked to it implicitly fascinating. We are in the future going to have to do some stuff about, for example, the Fountain of Youth. I'd oh, love to talk absolutely. about that. But I mean, I've read a bit about Zoroastrianism. I've read some of the important sacred texts, but I'd say my belief of the culture surrounding it is fairly limited. Although the digging I have done into it has been really, really interesting and I'd definitely like to know more. Yeah, I find um, the whole double pantheon with the, the brother gods very interesting in yes. Zoroastrianism and is well worth a further dig into if you are interested. If you're completely unfamiliar with Zoroastrianism, the reason it's so important is that really... It's the first religion that moves away from that pantheism notion of many, 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 many gods to a place where you really have one goody god and one baddie god. Yeah, so the idea is that one of them is a force for ultimate creation yes. and the other is the subversion, the force for ultimate destruction. And generally speaking, in, in kind of the study of religious anthropology and history, we get Christianity developing out of Zoroastrianism mm. down the line a little bit. Of course, you know, we've talked about Abrahamic religions a little bit as well. But yes, yeah, yeah. such an interesting I think thing. when we see depictions of Lucifer, for example, yes. in early medieval mystery plays, mm -hmm. you get that idea of the, the ultimate force for bad versus yeah. the ultimate force for good, don't you? Which I think perhaps maybe stems from that dualism a little bit. Well, um, human beings, we love... A binary opposite. We sure do. <laughs> Black and white, yin and yang, yes, good and evil. Definitely. We love it. <laughs> Scrying certainly predates the Charmaine, though. Um, ancient Egyptian images, which you talked about, depict 
water, dream, and mirror scrying. Mm-hmm. So we've got actual images of those. Yeah. And one of the legends of Hathor, the goddess mother of the sun god Ra, has her carrying a reflective shield, which showed all things as they truly were, Whoa. which she then used to turn into the first magic mirror. That sounds awesome. However, the widest recorded use of mirrors for magical and ritual purposes comes from historic Mesoamerica. Okay, so this links back to John Dee, doesn't it? Because from what we understand, his obsidian mirror was actually an Aztec artefact, wasn't it? Yes, it was brought to Europe after the conquest of Mexico by Hernán Cortés from 1519 to 1521. So interesting. And it is made of obsidian, Mm -hmm. which we know was sacred to Tezcatlipoca, the Aztec sky god. Mm -hmm. Actually, the name Tezcatlipoca is sometimes translated as smoking mirror, which is quite interesting. Oh, that is so interesting. I mean, I am, again, deeply fascinated by historic Mesoamerican culture cultures and their perceptions of time and space, for example. But what's interesting is I hadn't actually come across mirrors or scrying as an important part of Mesoamerican cultures before. Well, they were highly important and far from being just cosmetic items, they were associated with portals to other realms, they were metaphors for sacred caves and also used as conduits or tools for communication with deities or otherworldly entities. Well, it seems like the same things that were happening there were what was basically happening in what we call like ancient pagan or Celtic cultures Mm. in Northern Europe. Just um, in a slightly different way, because rather than using natural features like bodies of water, they were very much tied to these physical objects, which could have been worn on the clothing or carried in the hand, as well as being depicted in art. I mean, there there were lots of them. (laughs) It was a symbol you would see a lot. Fascinating. I read, actually, that in central Mexico, the conception of the world was once as a huge circular mirror. What? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Yeah. And as well as the world, mirrors were identified with the sun due to their shape and the light reflecting properties. Mm -hmm. And they might also be symbolically associated with human eyes, spiders webs, flowers, shields, fires, passageways. I mean, the list goes on. (laughs) It's fair to say that a huge number of ancient mirrors or depictions of mirrors in other visual art have been excavated in that part of the world too. So we know it was really important. Uh, And we also know that, you know, for example, people have had mirrors they were using them like we say in ancient egypt and in ancient uh, yes Greece. and for cosmetic purposes as well as all yeah. these important ritual purposes definitely but some of these ideas i'm guessing from what you're saying filtered into europe after the conquest of south america yes i mean mirrors and mirror-like artifacts were certainly sent back to well the royal court in spain at first and yeah. became a bit of a collector's item among european aristocracy but i don't know if they were widely used in a sort of spiritual sense, or if they were just regarded as these kind of must-have collector's items, oh, look, brought this back from the conquest kind of thing. Well, I do know that the early church really condemned scrying as a form of witchcraft. Yes. So it was seen to be outside of the Bible, outside of church, so it was really frowned on. I think it was banned, wasn't it? Officially, papal edict, don't do it. Definitely. But then we get John Dee. (laughs) Yes, um, he got his hands on one of these these conquistador souvenirs, shall we say. Yeah. And now we've talked about Dee a fair bit on Three Ravens. He's such a fascinating figure. 
anyone who rejoices in the reputation of being the last royal magician is worthy of a bit of celebration, I think. Most definitely. <laughs> Although he was also a serious academic and one of the most widely read people in England in his time. Mm. He had so many books, apparently, that he had to keep them in extra external sheds because he'd run out of room in his house. I mean, I strongly identify with this problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have this problem all the time, don't we? Yes. The boxes of books in our attic only ever grows. But his library was considered to be one of the most extensive in England in the 60th century. So interesting. And he was also incredibly interested in the occult, even at a time when it was very dangerous to be. Yeah. He almost got into some serious hot water for casting horoscopes for Mary I and Elizabeth I. But after Elizabeth took the throne, she was happy to work with him. And famously so, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, she, she allowed him to cast her horoscope after that. Well, not only that, and, uh, but there is some argument to suggest that, you know, he helped to save the country, right? That he, oh, yes. He, yeah. uh, his predictions helped with the uh, conquering the Armada. <laughs> exactly. Like, he, he wasn't just a crackpot. Uh, like, not at all. He was a serious philosopher mm. and scientist and mathematician in you know, multiple disciplines. Uh, but he did have this other interest. Well, that's the thing. We tend to think about him today because he was associated with the occult as someone who's not to be taken seriously. But the work that he did was incredibly serious and very, very helpful to the health of the nation. Yet he also fell out of favour, didn't he? Yes, he he made enemies very easily, yep. I think. Uh, he wanted to go his own way and possibly go a bit too far. And mm. that, that wasn't a great idea. Nope. <laughs> but we know that from uh, about 1583, he became fascinated with the idea of communicating with spirits and angels, yeah. who he's supposed to use a language of letters and symbols called Enochian. And it, it seems as though Dr. D had a real enjoyment of the trappings of magic too, because we have evidence that his work with his slightly dodgy colleague, Edward Kelly, included crystal balls, cards, a huge wax tablet he called the Seal of God. Yes. And an elaborately designed table of practice where they would do their work. I mean, I know it's totally possible to practice magic with very simple tools or maybe even no tools at all, but there's something wonderful about the idea of having a table of practice first oh, of all yes i would love to own a table of practice <laughs> like, i have a little one next to the front door which is kind of where i keep most of my magical goodies and we set up shrines and, and and take them down again on a kind of seasonal basis like a lot of people do but i think having the objects you might not need them, but there's something so wonderful about all those arcane mm. artefacts. Oh, I think so. I think most people who are a little bit into practicing witchcraft or magic in whatever form do like the stuff that goes yeah. along with it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so Dee would obviously use his obsidian scrying glass, this Aztec item, which may have been used previously in very different religious practices, mm. but he used it to help conjure visions of angels and spirits and then transcribed the conversation that yes. were held with these entities. Uh, it was Edward Kelly who really did the scrying, though, right? He was employed as his scryer. And Edward Kelly, I mean, firstly, Kelly thought that what they were seeing was not angels but demons, and he begged Dee over time to stop this practice. But he was also quite a controversial character, wasn't he? He was. He had been in trouble with the law, shall we say. Mm. Um, and we have no way of knowing if Kelly was fraudulent and just pretending to act as a medium to these forces, or if he was the real deal. Yeah. Certainly Dee believed that they were having these experiences and meticulously recorded all their discoveries in great detail 
detail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dee had real academic credentials. We know he lectured at the University of Paris, not on magic at all, but on the rather dry subject of Euclid's geometry. Yes. And he was an expert mathematician and astronomer, but he just persisted in his fascination with the invisible world all through his life. Yeah, but we've also got to put ourselves into an Elizabethan mindset where people did believe that there was a hidden ministry of fairies and angels and ghosts and the unknown that was existing in parallel with our own and overlapping at times. You know, how people explained diseases and strange occurrences and storms, bad weather. You know, we think about things in a very clinical way or tend to in the Mm -hmm. modern world. But for someone like John Dee, I mean, he's clearly trying to understand the nature of reality. Yes. And all of this exists alongside Christian belief. Yes, that's true. So at no point is he saying the Christian God's not real. He's regarding his practices as a kind of Jacob's Ladder connecting this world and a higher plane. Absolutely, yes. Although we do have some evidence that he also used crystals to ask questions about things like hidden treasure. Um, So (laughs) Professor Deborah Harkness in her book about Dee, um, she suggests that he only did this whenever he was a bit short of cash. That's such a cool idea. But then again, who hasn't asked for magical intervention when it comes to, you know, the bank account? looking a little bit lower than it might yeah, ideally be. Prosperity <laughs> magic takes on a real appeal in tax bill season, doesn't it? <laughs> now, we also know that uh, scrying was practised by Dee's contemporary Nostradamus, mm. which means that even now the effects of centuries-old scrying are being felt because the prophecies of Nostradamus are still being studied and indeed related to modern events. Yes, there are some who suggest Nostradamus predicted not only the Great Fire of London and the French Revolution, but the of Hitler and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. <laughs> Nostradamus was the sobriquet of Michel de Nostradam, mm. who was a polymath in a similar way to Dee, really. He was a physician and an apothecary who spoke many languages, published a yearly almanac and fought against the plague epidemic as a doctor. He was an absolutely amazing person if you look into his life. But I hadn't realised that his predictions were a result of scrying. Oh, yes. So Nostradamus used a scrying bowl, so a brass bowl filled with water which he would place on a tripod and gaze at until he perceived to quote him a slight flame out of the emptiness isn't that an amazing phrase it kind of gives me goose pimples a slight flame out of the emptiness Mm. Okay, so we've already talked about this idea of trance-like states where people would see visions. I mean, I thought that Nostradamus just saw things through visions, but he was looking into a scrying Mm, He was trying to induce his visions. How interesting. Although... Actually, he was himself quite cagey about the source of the vision, which makes sense considering the Catholic Church in the 16th century was very interested in anything which smelt a bit witchy. (laughs) It was as though he was treading a fine line between marketing his work by shrouding it in these mysterious rituals, while also saying that he would make absolutely no claim to the title of prophet, which he did say lots of times. (laughs) calling his book The Prophecies of Nostradamus. I mean, it's not very (laughs) subtle. No, but in a letter to Henry II, he he did say, I am not a prophet and I don't claim to be. <laughs> uh, Nostradamus' prophecies, though, have been the focus of study for centuries. 
And while many scholars are sceptical of a number of the circumstances, like mm. including poor translations of 16th century French being open to manipulation by people who want to read more into them than's actually there. Yeah, of course. The attempt to apply modern meaning to the prophecies is still alive and well in some quarters. Yeah, I mean, we still get the same with Mother Shipton, for yeah, example. Yeah, we do. Or, people still trying to make those happen. Yeah, trying to make them happen, even though a lot of them don't seem to have had anything to do with Mother Shipton herself. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's so interesting to consider that something as objectively vague and unscientific as looking at a bowl of water is given serious consideration by so many people across history. But I do find it very interesting the way that scryers throughout history have sought to link the visions or impressions they receive to the supernatural world, perhaps of spirits or perhaps of deities. Mm -hmm. This feels like a very ancient idea, but it actually formed the basis of some religious thought as late as the mid-19th century. Really? Now, just having a quick look into my obsidian glass, <laughs> and based on my interpretation of the swirling images and colours I see, I can confirm we'll be finding out more right after this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. So Elena, I'm intrigued. I want to find out how you're going to link scrying to 19th century religion because when i think about belief in the 19th century i tend to assume a kind of high christian majority and we know the church wasn't really into things like divination or anything which could be kind of manipulated by well their main fear was it would be manipulated by demons oh it? those naughty demons always <laughs> hovering in the shadows ready to pounce yeah. <laughs> but in this instance scrying in the form of using seer stones Ooh. was fundamental to the founding of the christian sect the church of latter-day saints okay i know a little bit about the church of latter-day saints color me intrigued go on tell me more so the latter-day saints movement traces its origins back to the 1810s 20s kind mm. of period and a man called joseph smith yes smith grew up in <laughs> rural vermont right at the time of the second great awakening which was a protestant religious revival basically which kind of focused on social reform and evangelical fervor yeah it was based solely on the teachings of the bible mm. and intended supposedly to recapture pure uncorrupted original christianity that's a quote it's funny how many christian sects are all really keen to recapture the pure uncorrupted original Christianity. <laughs> yeah, and we can still see um, the effects of the Second Great Awakening in operation today, like the revival meetings, which are these sort of big festivals of day-long preaching. They still yeah. happen, and they, they 
kicked off around then. So they've been going a long time. And that kind of grows out of Methodism, really, which mm. happens in the late 18th century, sort of mid to late 18th century. You get this idea of almost celebrity priests, right? These people who came and really inspired big crowds, but they did it sometimes in quite humble locations. So in working men's halls, in social clubs, but also like in barns, for example. Yes, and yeah. I think the barns are now in latterly large marquees um, tend to be very popular because they can cram lots of people in. Certainly in the United States. (laughs) But there's some interesting context for you here, Martin, Mm. because Joseph Smith was a young man in 1816 Uh and he grew up in a farming community. So 1816 was known as the year without summer, which for Smith's family meant disastrous crop failure. For a lot of Europe and And, and the world in general, in fact. And so this is the backdrop against which he starts to experience visions. I mean, if people haven't heard about the year without summer, it is so, so interesting. 1816, the Napoleonic Wars have been rocking and rolling. Most of the world's economy is already in a terrible state. A lot of nations have been more or less completely destroyed. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge volcanic eruption in the Far East that then spews all of this ash into the sky, which then basically blocks the sun from shining brightly. It never really becomes daytime. And we get widespread crop failure, famine. You can cut into old trees and see the rings where those trees didn't grow. And at this time, people believed it was a sign of the coming apocalypse. And into this is Joseph Smith, a young man growing up. (laughs) Now, had Dr. D been around, he would have been extremely interested in Joseph's visions because Joseph described being visited by an angel who directed him to the site of buried treasure. Mm. So it's something we know D was quite interested in. And in this case, the angel was called Moroni and they told him about the location of a buried stone box containing golden plates inscribed with hieroglyphics. Yes, and very famously, Joseph Smith found these amazing golden plates, didn't he? Well, Joseph Smith said so, (laughs) but he was the only witness. Uh, But he insisted that he found the plates, translated their meaning by means I will talk about in a moment, and then conveniently returned them to the angel before anybody else could see Mm -hmm. them. But fortunately, he published their contents in the text that would become the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Now, I think it's fairly widely theorised that Joseph Smith Never found any golden plates. It is highly possible, (laughs) although some of Smith's friends and relations also claimed to have seen and handled the plates. Okay. Or at least the box containing the plates, (laughs) the weight of which is widely recorded. I'm going to be open-minded. Let's go with it. How did he translate these golden plates? Because presumably they were written in the language of the angels. Yes, they were certainly written in a strange language, which Smith referred to as reformed Egyptian. Reformed. Um, which uh, presumably was what he thought the the angels might speak. Um, But he was able to translate reformed Egyptian, fortunately for us, uh, using seer stones, which were also supposedly shown to him by the angel. He's a very thoughtful angel, this angel, wasn't he? Yes, the angel in the vision was wearing a breastplate, which contained the stones. um, (laughs) Like a kind of wonder bra. (laughs) 
<laughs> the gesture I just did really wasn't helpful there, was it? Um, yes, um, actually, um, somebody has attempted to make a reconstruction of how this might have looked. Of and it, it, just, it doesn't look like a wonder bra. It's always oh, quite majestic, actually. Right. Um, but these stones were intended to help Smith translate God's word from the plates. Mm. And the method he employed was to place the seer stone at the bottom of a white stovepipe hat. Sure. And then to put his face over the hat to block out the light... And then he'd gaze into the stone to divine information. Sorry, what? This is crazy. Yes. So long, tall white stovepipe hat, stone inside, face over the top. Perfect translation of the golden plates. But just the golden plates were somewhere else completely. What? Oh, no, the golden plates he, he had with him. Yeah, he had with them, but not in the hat. <laughs> no, no, they weren't in the hat. No! They were fixed so, so, next to the hat. Oh, OK, I'm going to have a little look at the plates. Then I'm going to put the stone in the hat and then put my face in the hat. And then I'll be able to read the plates which are outside the hat. Am I the only one who's seeing a problem with this? Yes, I would love to see a dramatic reconstruction of this. Um, and if anyone can point us in the direction of one, I'd be extremely grateful. Um, but uh, Joseph sort of developed his own mythology around these seer stones, which did. he began to refer to as Urim and Thummim, which sounds wonderfully mystical, I yeah. think, Urim and Thummim. But it actually refers to a whole category of instruments used for receiving divine revelations oh, this within the, the Book of Mormon absolutely text. absolutely fascinating to me because I don't tend to associate Christian belief with practices which sound so much like folk magic. Yeah, exactly. But it seemed to form a key part of Smith's religious quest. Mm. We've got this fabulous story of the golden plates and the origin of the text. But we know he continued to use divination for other purposes, including locating lost items just like D yeah. and looking for treasure. And he also drew magic circles. We know he used amulets and talismans to protect him against various evils, well, some of which um, we can yeah. still see. They've, they've, they still exist today. He's a really intriguing figure. And I've been saying all day I'd love to see a feature-length film about Joseph Smith, if that would ever be made. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> When we think about Mormonism, it's a serious religion. You know, we looked it up. There are over 16 million people all over the world who follow this particular church. And so you, you can't mock it. You've got to take it seriously. Yeah. And I mean, not everybody in uh, the Church of Mormon today or the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints will stick to absolutely everything said by Joseph Smith yes. in the 1800s. That's, uh, that's not necessarily the truth. But, you know, this is this is the place it comes from. You are. He's the kind of founding prophet of the church. But I mean, his life was not without controversy. No, it? he had an absolutely wild life, yeah. um, which culminated in his murder while in prison for treason in 1844. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but um, he, didn't actually, um, he didn't actually commit the treason. The treason was a false accusation was to get it? him in prison. Yes, uh, he made a lot of trouble for the wider state, it's fair to say. Um, so he was, he was put away. Because I'm aware that the army did try and purge the Mormons, for example. Yes, a, um, a state militia in Missouri at the time attempted to exterminate Smith and all the Mormons around yeah. him, which was actually terrible. Oh, um, awful and, you know, they yeah. succeeded in killing quite a lot of people. So there was a lot of kind of aggression mm. towards this movement at the time. But I guess as a consequence of this wrongful death, it only effectively made him into a kind of martyr. Yeah. After his death, he assumed the role of yeah, a martyr, saint, an almost folkloric figure mm. and even became associated with miracles. Oh, OK. This sounds very promising. Which miracles can we attribute to 
Sir Joseph Smith. Well, say, for example, after his body had been transported from the prison where he died to its resting place, the blood-stained box used to carry the body, yeah. it was blood-stained because he was shot multiple times mm. and also fell off from a window, uh, it was cut up and made into walking canes, which became known as coffin canes. Coffin canes? Mm-hmm. Oh, Some my of these goodness. walking canes also contain locks of Smith's hair, much like a saint's relic, yeah, you might think. definitely. And they were owned by his friends and associates who believed that they had healing and talismanic properties. Fantastic. So he was his coffin was made into magic staffs. Yeah. This is his, sensational. With his blood and hair. I mean, I've within. got to say, it's a bit of a personal ambition, you know, after I'm gone. <laughs> Just going to say. Noted. <laughs> but one, they, these... these Canes were talked about in sermons and prayer meetings. And one sermon said that, this is a quote, the day will come when there will be multitudes who will be healed and blessed through the instrumentality of those canes. And the devil cannot overcome those who have them in consequence of their faith and confidence of the virtues connected with them. That is a very long sentence and a wild idea. So do any of these coffin canes or his stovepipe hat or his seer stones, like does any of this still survive? Yes, some of the artefacts still exist. Not the hat, I don't think, sadly, but the seer stones absolutely are still owned by the Mormon church. And there's also also an invaluable online resource called the Joseph Smith Project, which gathers all his writings together and there's photographs of the reconstructions they've done of the breastplate, as I was saying, and uh, the golden tablets as well. Um, If you're interested in finding out more, go digging into the Joseph Smith Project. I had a great time. Okay, so something that seems to be emerging from this discussion. Like a slight flame out of the emptiness. (laughs) Yes, okay, like a slight flame out of the emptiness. But still, something that seems to be emerging from this discussion is that visions and information received while scrying through any of the methods that you've talked about, it's kind of a deeply personal thing. And so I'm thinking like, Rather like Joseph Smith discovering the golden plate perfectly alone, it's quite difficult to prove just how much of it's an act of pure imagination. (laughs) Yes, I think some of our associations reflect, if you'll excuse the pun, that idea as well, don't they? When I think about scrying, I definitely think of slightly fraudulent crystal gazes at carnivals, or perhaps the animated film of Robin Hood where he disguises himself as a fortune teller. Love that bit. Oodalali, oodalali, oodalali. It's very tempting to imagine visions playing out almost like little films in the heart of a crystal Mm. either to show the future or something that's happening elsewhere but it's my view that it does have more to do with the meditative state a person enters with the crystal or water or mirror or glass or whatever it may be as the focus for the mind and any images that then come are on a subconscious level well that idea of the subconscious and the becoming conscious the semi-conscious like We've we've done studies into this kind of experience of staring Mm. into a mirror because people do genuinely see things. They absolutely see things in those mirrors. But from our understanding, this basically equates to a kind of self-hypnosis where Mm. people are effectively entering into an altered state of mind. Now, that's not to say that the things they see aren't incredibly meaningful or perhaps even real, but... There is something a little bit disturbing about that notion that you can trick your mind into seeing things that aren't really there. Yes, well, it's like when we talked about Ouija, isn't it? And yeah. that everybody may sit around a Ouija board and be absolutely convinced they've not moved the Blanchette. Mm-hmm. And yet, yes. there may be an auto-response 
which means you are moving the planchette. Yeah, and there are lots of similar acts that maybe relate to scrying as well across folklore. I mean, we were talking about the Bloody Mary game the other evening. Yes. A sort of dare where, you know, you repeat Bloody Mary into a mirror and then the malevolent figure known as Bloody Mary we don't think linked to Mary the First. No, do we? I don't. I think that's a coincidence. <laughs> but nonetheless, a malevolent figure known as Bloody Mary then appears in the mirror in the darkened room. You know. Which actually links to ideas about St. Agnes Eve traditions, yes. where young unmarried women might either eat salty food to dream of their future husband offering them a drink or would gaze into a mirror to catch a glimpse of his face. Mm-hmm. And there's another one I think you meant to do a Martin Mass, where you have to brush your hair with a silver brush until static appears and then you see your future husband in the mirror and uh, if you were destined to die unmarried you might see a skull representing death instead so cool but it seems to me that scrying has a lot in common with the interpretation of dreams i guess so i could also relate it to like reading the tea leaves Mm. because it's about symbols emerging that are of a personal consequence or that maybe come out of the unconscious. It's a little bit, I suppose, like using tarot to guide you on your journey. Your personal connection to the images on the cards is always going to be a bit more useful than the explanation that comes out of the tarot guidebook that you're using. Absolutely. The symbol's got to mean something to the querent, hasn't it? Mm. There's also just no uniformity across scrying procedures, which makes it quite a difficult thing to define. Mm. And of course, it's frustrated the more scientifically minded for centuries. People (laughs) have sought, as people often do, to further categorise it. And you actually end up with this whole plethora of subcategories. Here are a few for fun. Anthracomancy for scrying by gazing into glowing coals. Hydromancy for scrying into water. Yes. Turifumi for smoke. Catoptromancy for specifically mirror scrying. Yes. There are loads. Yeah. And these days you can even engage in smartphone scrying. Oh, don't tell me. I bet there's an app. Is there an app? There's completely an app. (laughs) But there's also the reflective black mirrored screen of the phone itself, which I'm sure John Dee would have thoroughly made use of if he'd been living today. Oh, my goodness. That idea is kind of terrifying to me. The angels you would see in a smartphone screen. Well, they, you know, people do spend a lot of time gazing into them, don't they? Almost entering a hypnotic trance-like state of doom scrolling. Maybe that's visions of the now. Well, considering that people used to believe that Potentially, mirrors were a means whereby ghosts and demons could enter into homes. You've got to think about that black mirror of the mobile phone and how much time you spend looking into it because Absolutely. maybe things are coming out of it that you don't even realise. Maybe you're listening to Three Ravens on your black mirror right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. Because our voices come out of it. Uh, hopefully. To hopefully inspire you with some interesting folklore yeah, things. <laughs> only good things coming from us, hopefully. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Eleanor. That's been really, really interesting. And it certainly inspired me to do some more crystal games. Does your vision show you what's coming next for Three Ravens Podcast? (laughs) Oh yes, it's showing me that we'll be back on Monday with your episode all about the history and folklore of Wiltshire. And it's also showing me a glorious new edition of the Three Ravens newsletter, unfurling its ink black wings and flying to our Patreon subscribers today. 
If you'd like to receive it too and don't already support us through Patreon, please consider joining at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. You might also join us on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast or X at three ravens pod. And we also have a lot of fun on the three ravens podcast group on Facebook. So much interesting, fun, wonderful stuff happening on there. People posting really lovely things about their kitchen witches at the moment. Yes, thank you for that. Some incredible craft projects that have been done while listening to the Three Ravens podcast. I find it so inspiring. Eleanor and I both think it's so, so lovely. So thank you everyone for taking part. Now, just a reminder that our flash fiction competition is still open. It's open until the end of series three. Please send us your original folky fiction of up to a thousand words and we will read out our favourites on a special episode after the end of the series. We would also love to hear from you if you've ever done any scrying of any sort. Yes, please. And if you'd be happy to share your experiences, please do get in touch with us on social media or by emailing threeravenspodcast at gmail.com, which is also the place to send us any thoughts, artwork or tales of your adventures. Until next time then, while our crystal visions have vanished that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.